Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sarah Seidner, and this is CNN Tonight. Amid all the legal peril mounting for former President Donald Trump this week, first on CNN, new information about a new drama playing out in court you haven't heard about until now. A secret fight between Donald Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department over its intensifying January 6th investigation. Under grand jury secrecy rules, this dispute is under seal. But we have learned the ex-president's team was in D.C. federal court Thursday trying to block a federal grand jury from gathering information from former top Trump aides about his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. It's the most aggressive step perhaps taken by Donald Trump to assert executive and attorney-client privileges to keep witnesses from cooperating with that investigation. How this fight is resolved could determine whether the firewall around Donald Trump falls, opening the floodgates about what aides and lawyers were telling him on and around January 6th and what decisions he was making. This comes as the January 6th committee is about to hold its first public hearing in more than two months. That's going to happen next Wednesday. It could be the final hearing before the panel releases its final report and... Of course, the suspense is building about what its endgame will be. Will the committee formally recommend a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump to the DOJ in connection with the Capitol attack? That remains a possibility. In the classified documents case, the Trump team has until next Friday to present proof to a special master that would back up allegations that the FBI planted evidence when agents searched his home. And he now faces a criminal lawsuit for fraud in New York filed this week by a state attorney general. Uh, This is a civil lawsuit, not criminal, excuse me who believes that Donald Trump committed crimes while trying to enrich himself through alleged financial schemes. While she is going after him civilly, she has also referred her findings to the DOJ and the IRS. At a rally tonight, Donald Trump tried to garner sympathy from his supporters. There's never been a president that's gone through the crap that I'm going through left and right. The document hooks. We have a document hooks. Attorney General, New York State, every single day and suing him, I'm going to sue him. And then I'm going to go home and I'm going to be so happy because I sued him. Alrighty then, for more on where all this could lead, we turn to CNN political commentator Van Jones, former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree, and CNN political commentator Scott Jennings back for more. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being here. Um, Okay, I I, want to start with you, Van. You know, you listen to what you've just heard. Uh, Does it work? Because, to be fair, the polling from people who support him has not come down. In fact, in some cases, it's gone up. Listen, uh, he has a hardcore base of supporters that no matter what he does, they're with him. Like you said, the moon was made out of you know, blue yogurt. They go get a spoon. They don't care, and they love that. They love the whole thing. 
I think what you, and then of course the people on our side who are progressives and Democrats that don't like him. I think what you got to look at is the people in the middle. Even that middle is small. Um, how do they feel about all this stuff? And I think it go, it starts to get lumped in with the overall just disgust and frustration with all the nonsense in the system, and it begins to I think erode his ability to win a general election if he ever gets a nomination again. I think Van is right about that. By the way, I, I if you look at some of the polling nationally that's come out lately, you can just see him dropping a few points every time, losing to Joe Biden. Uh, and I suspect this is where some Republican will come at him in the 2024 primaries. Like, look, I appreciate everything you did, but we can't afford to lose to Joe Biden again. I also think Van's right about his core supporters. And, and I also think this, he's been in turmoil ever since he started. You know, when we've done a lot of years now of, of mm. the walls are closing in right. on Donald Trump and, and he's constantly in turmoil, but never been indicted. You know, it's, he'd been impeached and acquitted twice. I mean, they've never quite gotten there. And until somebody gets there on him, I don't think his supporters are going to regard any of this as anything other than what he calls it, which is a witch hunt. And I'll just say one other thing, and I'm interested in their opinion on this and, and yours. The entrance of Tish James into this, I think, gives Trump a little hook to hang on to about the partisan nature of it. I suspect Merrick Garland is not a huge fan of the fact that now you have a very partisan prosecutor involved in what I think he's trying to keep as a very nonpartisan process. You won't get my opinion, but I, I will ask the opinion of our, of our guests here. Um, Tom, I do want to ask you, there are so many legal issues piling up. Let's put politics aside. How can you juggle all these things? I mean, where is this headed? <laughs> it's complicated. I mean, you need a scorecard to map out the daily legal developments. Look, I think Donald Trump right now is in his element. Uh, you know, the, he hasn't been indicted. He's fending off multiple attacks from different prosecutors. I think for the public perception, it may be difficult for the public to distinguish, frankly, between a lot of these different cases. And Donald Trump is doing what he loves to do, which is to attack the prosecutors, which is try to turn the table. We saw it with Bob Mueller. Now we're seeing it with Tish James. This is where he likes to be. I'm not sure he likes to be indicted if that's ultimately where we go. But at this stage of the game, I think it's fair to say we saw from the rally tonight, he's in his element. So there is the element of money here. Why hasn't, and I'll ask this to you, Scott, why hasn't Donald Trump gone ahead and said he's going to run if you think he is going to run? Is there a reason for that? Well, I mean, there are some campaign finance implications to saying, just like Joe Biden the other night uh, said he was, you know, wasn't quite ready to say he was right. running because there are campaign finance implications to declaring your candidacy for president. I suspect that's at top of mind. But I'm sure some of these things also, you know, weigh on his mind, too. And and uh, I mean, anyone waking up every day with all this stuff, you know, hanging over their head. I mean, I'm sure it's it's. Uh, anxiety-inducing and stressful, and it, and it does maybe cause you to think twice. Mm -hmm. uh, I do expect him to run, and obviously the polls show he's the most likely person to be the, the Republican nominee, but uh, I suspect it has most to do with just the implications of declaring your candidacy uh, more than anything. We have perhaps a last January 6th uh, committee hearing that it may be coming up, maybe the last, uh, coming up on Wednesday. I want you to listen to uh, Jamie Raskin, who gave a tiny preview, if you will, of what we might hear, what more we might hear. And then, Van, I'm going to have you respond. He, he's someone who I think saw where things were going. And there were clearly people who understood the preparations that were taking place. And if you think you almost knock over the government of the United States uh, spontaneously, uh, then you haven't been, been paying close attention. So he is talking about Roger Stone there. But there have been a lot of people who have spoken. We're expecting to hear from more, potentially hearing more depositions. Has this damaged 
Donald Trump and his potential run in any way, in your opinion? I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think not for his core base. I think his core base feels that he's um, uh, being persecuted. And this sort of uh, himself, Donald Trump is the righteous victim being persecuted on your behalf. That resonates with his base. I think, for, again, Democrats, we look at that and say, like, geez, this is a party that's supposed to be for law and order, embracing lawlessness. It's supposed to be for personal responsibility. He's taking no responsibility for anything. This just looks like the ultimate hypocrisy. The reason that it hurts him is because you have some reasonable Republicans who just want a pathway to victory. And all of these become pebbles on the path, become stones in the shoe of anybody who's running with that kind of baggage. And they will begin possibly to look for other champions. And so the problem for him is when it's primary season, does a DeSantis or anyone else say, as was said earlier, you can't get there with this much baggage. Let someone else with the same politics get there without the baggage. And every time one of these things happens, I guarantee you at least one more Republican joins the camp of, I need a new champion. And all you need is a, a few of them to have a very competitive primary. Can I ask you about legally speaking, how likely might it be that there are charges eventually because of January 6th, and then after what Letitia James has sort of laid out in her civil suit uh, about potential money fraud and IRS fraud. Yeah, on the Tish James front, my sense is I don't think that is too likely to result in criminal charges for the reason that the federal prosecutors have been looking at this. The New York DA has been looking at this. Presumably, they have most, if not all, of the evidence that Tish James already had. They chose, at least for now, to pass on it. So I don't see that. On the Mar-a-Lago incident, that, to me, seems more likely to possibly result in a criminal charge at the end of the day. But there, too, it's not clear to me that Merrick Garland ultimately would say, I'm going to take the momentous, historic step of indicting a former president. Is it possible he someone else in the chain, possibly one of the lawyers who signed the declarations or who's engaged in the back and forth with the Justice Department. Maybe that might be a likelier scenario. But it, needless to say, it would be a momentous historic event for Merrick Garland and presumably President Biden to make the decision to pull the trigger and indict a former president of the United States. One last question. Uh, when it comes to that, there have been a lot of people who have gone to jail around Donald Trump. At what point does that start to stop and people start to say, all right, enough? Well, or, I, or never? Well, I think for the hardcore Trump base, never. Uh, but I think it's about 50-50. If you look at the polling, you know, there's about half the Republicans that want him again and half that don't. The problem uh, for the rest of the Republicans that don't want him is they're all fragmented among a whole bunch of different people. It's exactly how he got the nomination in 16. Mm. He got 45% of the vote in the Republican primary. So he's never really been a majority maker in terms of general or primary elections. And he wouldn't be necessarily in this case either. So the fragmentation protects him as well as the base, which is, as Van said, unshakable. All right. We will be right back, gentlemen. Tom Dupree, thank you so much, Van and Scott. are going to stick with me. We've seen a lot of low blows in politics, especially now with the midterms fast approaching. But did a candidate for governor go too low today by making light of a plot to kidnap her opponent? What she's telling CNN coming up next. Today, the Dow Jones plunged to its lowest level since 2020, ending yet another dismal week for the markets as fears grow about a potential recession. Inflation remains a key concern for Americans, with the price of groceries and other goods remaining stubbornly high. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy zeroed in on these economic concerns today as he unveiled the Republican Party's legislative agenda with just two weeks to go until the midterm elections. Listen in. Do you not believe? As we went across this country listening, we heard the same thing. Kitchen table, 
to dining room table to inside the factory. Can I afford it? Can I afford to fill up my tank? Can I afford the food, the milk? Can I find baby formula? Banjo and Scott Jennings are back with me. We're also joined by David Swerdlick, CNN political commentator and senior staff editor at the New York Times opinion section. That's a lot of jobs. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, Van, you just heard uh, there, is the old adage still true? Does it still hold true even in these times that it's the economy, stupid? Yeah, look, it, it sure would have. And that's where things were just a few months ago. This was going to be a referendum on the Biden economy. Uh, you, you know, you want more inflation, vote for Biden. That, and then you had the decision to take abortion away mm-hmm. from American women. And it changed everything. And then Joe Biden started winning. And he started showing, hey, I can pass bills that can help you when it comes to gun safety. I can pass bills that can help you when it comes to uh, the climate. I can do something to help you with student loans. And suddenly now it's a choice. You used to, be, you used to say, hey, both parties are all the same. Doesn't matter. It's Tweedledum versus Tweedledumer. Who cares? You can't say that now. These are two very different parties with two very different agendas. And I think it is now a, a choice election, not a referendum election. So it used to be the economy stupid. I think it's now the economy plus a whole concern about the direction of the country. This is more like a general election in terms of people's sense of, of what's at stake than a midterm election. And a midterm election. What are your, what's your take on that? Because the, the Republicans uh, have talked about um, inflation, crime, and the sort of, I don't know if you want to call it the sort of war of words over what's happening in schools, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these things um, have come up. Who is going to grasp the public's um, need? Uh, who's going to be able to fulfill the needs of the public right now? Yeah, I mean, it's the Republican argument's really cost of living, quality of life. Yeah. I mean, the Dow's below 30,000. I hope nobody looked at their 401ks today because, you know. It's rough. Good, good it's rough. goodness. Yeah. Um, mortgage rates are high. Uh, inflation is still at a 40-year high despite the, you know, the president's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, poo-pooing all that. And so if you're a Republican candidate and if you're Kevin McCarthy, it, these are the issues on which people would trust the Republicans more than they would trust the Democrats. As Van pointed out, Democrats are trying to emphasize issues uh, where they're more trusted. I just think there are more economically focused voters in the country. I think it's a bigger bucket of voters to get than the abortion voters. In fact, in the NBC News poll this past Sunday, it was about 60, 40 people caring more about cost of living positions versus abortion positions. And so I think it's smart for the Republicans to focus on this. But ultimately, it boils down to two things, cost of living, quality of life. We just had a, a picture up there to show people kind of where Americans are. I want to let you listen to um, President Biden um, on the role of women and how important the role of women could be uh, in the midterms. I don't believe the night Republicans have a clue about the power of American women. Let me tell you something. They're about to find out. You're about to find out. Can we put those numbers back up on what Americans are really concerned about? Okay, inflation, 30 percent. Abortion, a close second. And then you've got health care, January 6th. That is usually lumped in with democracy and what's happening. David, I'm curious um, about looking at that and then hearing from uh, President Biden about the role of women. How big do you think that role will be? Sarah, people are concerned about all those issues. I also think they're concerned about whether 
the president or the opposition passes the two hands on the wheel test, right? Who has a plan for where they want to take the country, even if they haven't solved every single problem? Something like the Dow, if it continues to dip toward 20,000, President uh, Biden has a problem. If it, you know, kind of corrects after the market prices in these interest rate hikes, he's probably okay. When Biden is talking about the role of women, I think he's talking a lot about what happened in the last election where the parties split a lot was white women with college degrees in the suburbs. They broke for Biden because they had had enough of Trump. But if they have now had enough of Biden, then you're going to maybe see some of those voters. And those are some of the key voters between those 45-yard lines, the persuadables. That could hurt Democrats if Biden and Democrats don't stay on message. Okay. Um, Let's go to Michigan now, where uh, the governor there, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, is up for re-election. Both her opponent, uh, Tudor Dixon, and Donald Trump Jr. repeatedly joked today about the 2020 kidnapping plot against her. I was there when all of this went down. Um, and it really terrified a lot of people in politics in general. People were getting death threats. Um, and then to see this happen, and then what happened later on, January 6th, there, this was a, a moment where a lot of people thought it was bad taste. Let's listen in. The sad thing is that Gretchen will tie your hands, put a gun to your head, and ask if you're ready to talk. For someone so worried about being kidnapped, Gretchen Whitmer sure is good at taking business hostage and holding it for ransom. Scott, is this a good idea to say Uh, something like that? No, I mean, uh, no. This campaign is flailing to some degree. If you look at the polling averages, she's down 10 to 12 points. Uh, Whitmer constantly floats in the 50 to 52 percent range. So I think they're losing. And I think sometimes when people are losing in campaigns, they uh, resort to bad instincts uh, and they start to try to do what they think is throwing the ball down the field. Uh, But sometimes when you throw it down the field and you're down a couple of touchdowns, it gets intercepted. And uh, and that's what's happening right here. So this is not smart. And by the way, it's also not germane. I mean, these things aren't really germane to the core issues we were just talking about. I mean, if, right. if you wanted to remain focused on, you know, pocketbook issues, that'd be that'd be one thing. But I, I don't think this kind of uh, sort of towel snapping is is uh, going to resonate with most uh, persuadables. And can I quickly turn to something that's happened? There's a new super PAC um, that, that, that Trump has meant to support Republicans and to support Republican candidates that support uh, Donald Trump. What do you make of this? And, and, and should Democrats be worried about something like this? Because money does help uh, push ideas or at least push candidates forward. Well, first of all, Trump has a big pile of money himself. He's not using to help anybody. <laughs> so part of what's happening is his allies are having to put together money to do what he should be doing himself. It's, it's amazing uh, how loyal his base is to him and how much loyalty he expects from other politicians. But he doesn't return that loyalty very often. He's sitting on a big pile of cash himself. But you asked a different question, which is should Democrats be worried? I think absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's something happening in our politics. And I, you know, I put it back on the Supreme Court, letting all this money come into politics. But you, really, the, the money primary is sometimes as big or more important than any other primary. And so you're going to open up the floodgates for money. On, and you got now, we talk about Russia and oligarchy there. We have billionaires on both sides that just pour wheelbarrows of cash into our system. I don't think that's good. 
But I don't think Democrats should uh, uh, take anything for granted. I think it's very, very concerning. I was happy that Trump was sitting on all that cash, but apparently his friends are not that happy. They're going to try and fix it. Yeah, I, I think, uh, if I may, um, I think it's smart for him to finally get in the game because he was getting a ton of criticism from Republicans for hoarding all this money. They're going to put some of it in. And I'll just say, I know the people running it. Long history of running very successful independent expenditure operations and campaigns. So I would expect them candidly to be engaged in the states where Trump was heavily engaged in the primary and sort of determinative, getting people the nomination. Some of those folks are the ones struggling the most with campaign financing right now. So for him to ride in here and try to help out, smart politics for him could be good for those Republican campaigns. I think, I think part of this is that Republicans may be a little bit, a little bit of this is that Republicans have, are caught off guard. 2021, the White House Democrats didn't have a story to tell. Now Democrats have a story to tell. Chips, burn pits, uh, getting uh, J- Justice Jackson confirmed. They got the budget with ju- uh, with Senator Manchin yeah. finally. And I think now they realize they need more money and more juice to try and flip the, the, the Congress. Okay, everyone stay here. Don't run away. We, we are a nation divided over so many issues, including the freedom to read on this Banned Books Week. Our next guest will put a spotlight on what's being challenged in American schools, bookstores, and libraries. In growing numbers, he's the author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel that's taken center stage in this cultural battle. That's next. Libraries across the country are marking Banned Books Week, a campaign started by activists to celebrate the freedom to read. It's also meant to draw attention to the effort to ban books across the United States of America that recently accelerated. Over just the past year, more than 2,500 books uh, were banned. Those bans were enacted in 30 to states, with Texas and Florida leading the nation. The result, more than 1,600 titles have been pulled from school shelves, many that highlight themes of race and LGBTQ issues. The most frequently challenged book this year was Maya Kobabe's Gender Queer, a graphic novel about coming out as non-binary. Others include Toni Morrison's Beloved and The Bluest Eye, classics like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Catcher in the Rye, as well as Mouse, a Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust. It depicts Jews as mice and cats as Nazis. Joining me now is the author of Mouse, Art Spiegelman. Thank you so much for joining the program, Art. Thanks for having me, Sarah. There are so many books that have banned at a record rate, and we're in the 21st century. Why is this happening in your estimation? Well, this particular round has a lot to do with, first of all, the ever-heating-up polarization of America, uh, and therefore both sides seem to be involved in yanking books out of people's hands somehow. And I think just like the subject of the book Mao's, I just feel that there's a autocracy in the air. There's fights to remove freedoms, not to grant them by at least 40 plus percent of America supporting such notions. Um, and it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. What is this going to mean for the future of, you know, everyone likes to talk about freedom of speech. What is this going to mean for the future um, of America if more and more books are banned? Some of them classics. Some of them uh, were the beloved was the the reason why I started loving to read. (laughs) I hear you. Well, what will it mean? It'll probably mean better sales for those books until they start killing the authors rather than just uh, snatching the books away 
from uh, readers because, uh, you know, there's a spectrum on all this. The book banning I experienced was actually like my shrewd marketers in uh, Tennessee decided to yank it from the curriculum and it was announced pretty much the day before Holocaust Remembrance Day back earlier this year. And as a result, uh, my book has shot up to the top of the bestseller lists again. And I didn't need the favor, although it was kind of uh, the Tennessee School Board to do it, because the book's been doing just fine over the last 40 years. What is it about your book, you think, that had a school and a school district decide to, 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 to strip it from the curriculum? I think it's a good question. I've been kind of chewing on it uh, because in a way I think I've just been like um, a drive-by shooting. I'm just like cannon fodder in the culture war because uh, most of the books that are being banned, like the ones you mentioned, have to do with race and gender. And as somebody on the school board, one of the 10 people who hadn't read the book but unanimously decided to ban Mao's, one of them was being very defensive and said, don't get me wrong, I love the Holocaust. Uh, but what, so what they were complaining about was what they called a nude woman, which I got really upset by because most of the characters are, are mice, but the bit about my mother's suicide, which had been done several years earlier, quite a few years earlier and inserted into the book, had my mother's naked corpse in a bathtub after she had uh, slashed her wrists in that bathtub. And it's a rather chaste picture. So uh, a naked corpse is a better description than a nude woman. But I think the real reason it was banned is my book uh, is about the mudslide toward fascism and autocracy and defying authority. I defy my father's authority, my mother's authority as a young person. It was a wrestling match in our household uh, when I was growing up. And even though the story is really specific, it couldn't be more specific, trying as hard as I could to re-inhabit my father's experiences through a series of interviews where we talk about what happened to him. And yet, as you mentioned, basically the characters are all wearing cat masks, mouse masks, dog masks, pig masks to represent the different groups. And on that level, it's mythic. So even though I was as accurate as I could be about the specifics of the story, that was what I was trying to re-inhabit and understand, get to understand my father a bit better since we just didn't get along well. But the construct deals with all othering, not just Jews. And I think that's why it's useful in schools. The fact that it's told from, even though, you know, I must interrupt myself and say, I never meant this for kids. The whole point of working on this 13-year-old book was to make uh, a, a demonstrable proof that comics can be for grown-ups. Uh, I can't complain because it's been written out between middle school and graduate school quite a lot over these years. And uh, sometimes I, I meet rather dopey grad school students who don't get it and lots of middle school kids who do. Uh, it's not the same as the banning you were talking about when they're yanking yeah. things out of libraries, putting teachers and librarians under fire, often with personal fines attached, their jobs at risk. They're really uh, heroic. And... Um, are, what are I you thought worried? Was yanked out are of you worried? You, you you made a comment about taking out the the authors, which was was surprising. But are you worried about escalation of this? In general, yeah. I mean, look what happened to Salman Rushdie, which was a bunch of other uh, religious fanatics uh, deciding to uh, punish people for what they write and read. Yeah, yeah. He was stabbed so, multiple times. And is still level, recovering. Of course, I'm worried. And, you know, hate crimes are way up. You know, like I live near Chinatown and uh, the Chinese community is under threat. The Hispanic community is under threat. 
Um, us Jews tend to be honorary whites for the moment, even though I think that confused Whoopi Goldberg for a minute or two. Uh, but nevertheless... But there's been quite a bit of anti-Semitism that, that has gone up. Uh, gender, race... Well, that's been race, on the rise as yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Art Spiegelman... And, but, I mean, gender and race seems to be where the focus is. Yeah. Art, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. And we're going to talk more about culture wars in our schools just ahead, including... Governor Ron DeSantis unapologetically leading the changes in Florida, but a history lesson he offered this week was a work in fiction. Plus, the confrontation between a Florida teacher and a student over the Pledge of Allegiance. Now that teacher is out of the classroom. With school boards and conservative groups pushing for book bans in record numbers, we can't overlook the role of state leaders who are shaping what children learn in school. Just this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis addressed his, quote, Stop Woke Act, which restricts race-based conversations in businesses and in school, and offered this up. It was the American Revolution that caused people to question slavery. No one had questioned it before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights and that we are all created equal. Then that birth abolition movements. So you can't teach history that's being used to pursue an ideological agenda. Back with me, Van Jones, David Swerdlick, and Scott Jennings. Van. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, go I- ahead had the same reaction. Uh, Slavery didn't end and technically till 1865, 1776. That's almost a... Well, first, mean, first of all, you know, you reveal a lot uh, when you're speaking uh, about stuff you don't know anything about. So he says nobody questioned slavery until... You know who questioned it? The enslaved the people. Slaves. The enslaved people questioned it the whole time. And that's the thing. It's like you, 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 you have a worldview that so centers and so privileges a particular ideological agenda, a particular set of people, that you say things that are just patently ridiculous. And uh, he's a governor of a state, and there are kids in that state of all colors, all faiths, all hues, and he has to do a better job of representing all of them. Uh, 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 And also, uh, the reality is, um, kids aren't stupid. Uh, I've got a couple of them. You try to get them to believe something. Try to get them to believe something. They push back, they fight back, they think they have their own points of view. The idea that if you present an idea to a kid, uh, the kid is just going to swallow it whole. It's just not true. It's not true about kids. It's not true about human beings. But what's dangerous is when you don't let young people discuss the world around them and you give them no prompt and no cues. And so I understand uh, he's concerned that there are some people here who are uh, uh, anti-American, anti-capitalist, anti-white, anti. Those people are a problem. But the way you deal with those things is that you talk about it. When you don't talk about it, you're not able to, to address it. I, I was very offended, uh, and you know, I'm very, I try to put up with a bunch of stuff, but for him to say that nobody right. criticized slavery <laughs> until the, the slave-holding American fathers, uh, uh, founding fathers, decided to, 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 to raise it, and all, not all of them did, uh, disqualifies 200 years of African people who were enslaved, criticizing it the whole time. Who have been railing against it. Um, the, the state has banned, I think it's the second highest number of banned books in this state. Is this a winning tactic? I mean, if you will, this is just strictly politically. Mm. Uh, I think what you're seeing some Republican office holders respond to is the concern they're hearing from some parents uh, about 
some certain kinds of topics, materials, books, whatever you want to call it, being introduced to their children, and they don't agree with it. I mean, at its core, you have parents who don't want very, very young children being uh, talked to about, you know, say, sexualized material by people other than them. And uh, and so I think that's at the root of the tactic, uh, whether it goes too far uh, in certain instances and, and whether people are able to discern between, you know, who can handle what. I mean, I, I think that's the debate we're, we're going to have. But sure. do you see a difference between the sexualized material, the gender conversation, multiple genders, et cetera, versus... American history, slavery, slavery, that kind of... I'm just, I just wonder how you see it. Oh, yeah. I, I, and I think in this debate uh, and in this conversation, all these things get lumped right. together. Absolutely. Um, and so... Um, but, but there's no doubt uh, Republican officials, officeholders, are hearing daily from parents who have grown quite concerned about this. So they're, you know, as a tactical matter, they're responding to that. Um, and you know, I'll just, I've got, I've got a few of them myself and uh, I've talked to a lot of parents at schools and, and one of the core things I hear from parents is, you know, why are the schools spending so much time on topics that aren't sort of the core, you know, learning curriculum that, that I grew up with. That's what they're responding to. And, 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 and let me tell you, it is a rising sentiment in the Republican party. And I expect it will be a major topic over the next two to four years. It's definitely a rising sentiment, but it also has been pushed. I mean, there's no doubt that this has been something, I think we heard it from a couple of different sort of leaders in the, in the Republican party who purposely targeted school boards in particular um, and said this is the, the next bastion of, of where our fight needs to go. So what do you think about using schools as a political battleground? Yeah, you're exactly right, Sarah. At some point, Republicans decided that making the whole country the town in the movie Footloose was going to be a political winner. And so far, it has won in some places. It worked for Governor Youngkin in Virginia last year, uh, caught Democrats off guard. And I think until it doesn't work, and especially for someone like Governor DeSantis, who wants to be president, they're going to keep doing it. I agree with Scott that parents do sometimes say, look, at the elementary school level, you know, we should focus on reading, writing, arithmetic. Maybe it's not the time to focus on social justice issues if that's what they think is going on. I don't think that's always really what they think is what's going on. On the other hand, once you get to middle school, high school, to Van's point, um, we had slavery and segregation in this country. We had Japanese internment and the Zoot Suit riots in the World War II era. These things happened. We fought a civil war over slavery. To shield students at a certain age from those facts, from those realities, who benefited, who suffered, what happened, how we got where we are now, is not educating kids. And I think that message has gotten lost in this whole debate. I want to ask you about this this video that that is that has gone viral. It's a TikTok video of a of a teacher um, telling a student to stand up. I think for the pledge of allegiance. Let's let's watch it. I'll defend my country from the very then go back to where you're from, Mexico or Guatemala, where you're born, and you won't stand up for the flag. So he, the, the teacher says, where are you from? Why won't you stand up for the flag? But then he starts asking him where he's from. You can hear kind of a student kind of giggling in the background. The, the school district had a statement saying that the teacher no longer has contact with students. Um, it's in Manatee County in Florida, strongly condemning any language 
uh, or behavior that degrades, humiliates, or insults, insults students. And the concern was uh, that he was trying to say that the student was from somewhere else or wasn't American. What are your thoughts? I'll start with you, Scott. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that if teachers want to address something with a student uh, regarding any kind of behavior that they don't like or some, some disagreement they're having in the classroom, it's best to do that in private, and it's best to do that in a respectful manner. So not to shame them and sort of and, in front of other students. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, uh, I, I understand why he was relieved because um, anytime you start to talk to people like that, uh, A, that's bad, but B, when you start to do it in front of others, uh, makes it even worse, and I, so and I, so you know. I, look, I, I was raised to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, yeah. and 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 uh, and I, I, I certainly would. But but yes. I, again, I just think the interactions between teachers and students in front of other people. I mean, kids are vulnerable, they're nervous, and uh, and they're easily, you know. I mean, it's embarrassing to be called out by an adult like that in a setting like that. So uh, I think I think handling things privately and, and thinking through your interaction carefully is vital. All right, Van Jones, Davis Wordlick. Scott Jennings, thank you guys so much, and we will be right back. It's one of the most complex and controversial health mysteries in years, and it's impacted hundreds of American diplomats and service members Across the entire globe, it's called Havana Syndrome after being first reported in Havana, Cuba in 2016. Since then, official after official have reported the same symptoms, including concussion-like injuries like vertigo, headaches, and brain fog. Last month, the CIA started compensating agents who suffered traumatic brain injuries as a result of this syndrome. But so far, there have been no clear answers as to why this is happening. Our very own and very fabulous Dr. Sanjay Gupta traveled to Havana to investigate for a new CNN special report. And Sanjay, you are joining us now. This is so interesting to me. I'm, I cannot wait. I, it, it's been so fascinating and perplexing at the same time because you have these people who had these constellation of symptoms came on suddenly, sudden neurological symptoms. And the question is, what was causing that? One possible answer came from the National Academy of Medicine Sciences that said this could have been a directed energy, using microwave energy, potentially directing that energy at someone's brain. And then that got me wondering, are there technologies that actually do that? There's a gentleman, James Giordano. He's a neuroscientist, does a lot of things with national defense. He, we talked to him about this, and he thinks the answer is yes. The technologies exist and they are being used. Here's a little preview of our conversation. I went to Cuba, and I spent time talking to scientists, and I mean, they, they wholeheartedly, uniformly believe that there were no attacks. And they say there is no evidence at all that these happened. I solidly disagree with that. Could they have done this in a country and the country not know about it? Yes, I have no doubt. No doubt at all. The equipment could be assembled on site. Uh, the components could be brought into the country piecemeal. How big would this, this weapon potentially be? The device itself would be about the size of this bench, or, or perhaps a little smaller. And, and how far away would it need to be, or could it be, to actually deliver this energy? 
dozens of meters. The reality is that these devices exist, the science and technology is real, and they represent weaponizable entities. You know, I, I got to tell you, Sarah, before going into reporting on this, I was pretty skeptical. I did not know about directed energy weapons. I did not know how they could potentially cause these sorts of impacts on the brain. I thought it was, you know, science fiction, frankly. But I think what I've learned, and this is pretty clear, these technologies do exist. They've existed for a long time. And over the past few decades, they've gotten more precise. They've gotten better in terms of actually being able to cause these types of injuries in individuals. Can you tell us what types of devices are capable of transferring this type of, is it a microwave that, yeah. that sort of hits you? Sort of. Well, so you, if you think about, you know, the, the energy of what they call the electromagnetic spectrum, you got everything from sound waves to microwaves. What uh, James Giordano was sort of describing was something that might not be that big. In the past, it may have been something that had to be carried in a vehicle, but it could be much smaller now, something the size of, you know, he said that park bench, but even, even smaller than that. But again, these devices exist. Nobody doubts that. But using them in this way, there's no signature, there's no footprint to this. And that's what's made it so confusing. I, what I really found interesting is that you're a journalist and a, and a doctor, yeah. a brain surgeon. Right. So, you know, you do all the things. And even you went into this really skeptical. Have you come out of it not skeptical anymore that this is possible and this is happening to people? I think this is very possible. And I think at least for some of those patients in Havana, because you know there was concerns about these attacks all over the world, Austria and China and Russia, and those are less less clear. But I think for at least around two dozen people in Havana who had a very similar constellation of symptoms, who didn't even know about each other, when they first started uh, talking about their symptoms. I think it's pretty clear something objectively happened to them. It's terrifying. Sanjay Gupta, I am so glad you did this, and thank you for coming on CNN Special Report. Immaculate Concussion, The Truth Behind Havana Syndrome, premieres this Sunday at 8 p.m. Thank you for hanging out with me all week. It's been a real pleasure. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.